I'm going to invite you to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 is where we're going to be today. And um, this is a, uh, a very powerful text of Scripture. And I, I thought about this today. For some churches, um, this is a very divisive passage of Scripture. People get really opinionated in Romans chapter 9. Um, but I thought this morning, man, I am just privileged and blessed to be able to share this passage with our church this morning. Um, I, I feel very fortunate as a pastor to be able to be a pastor uh, here at ABC. Maybe because I planted the church. I don't know. But whatever, whatever, whatever the reason is, um, this is, out of all the churches that exist on planet Earth, this this is where I want to be, and this is the group of people I love to serve with. You guys are, uh, your, your heart for the Lord and your love for him just makes it a joy to walk through a passage like this. And, and when, when we start to engage this, this passage of Scripture, we're going to pick up in verse 14. We actually started it uh, last week. But in, in, in verse 14, you can tell by the way that Paul's written this, he's anticipating a lot of questions about what he has just discussed with the Jewish people, especially as it, it deals with the sovereignty of God over human beings um, and what that looks like for us, how uh, words like uh, predestination and election have been used and what does that mean for us in light of, of God's sovereignty and how are we to respond to that. Paul, Paul is, as a seasoned minister, he's anticipating there's going to be a, a, a lot of questions in light of what he has said. And, and part of the reason is because we as people, um, we battle with trust issues. Um, and especially when it comes to understanding how sovereign God is. In fact, when you look at this passage, um, this passage brings you to the precipice of reeling, realizing in comparison to God, um, we are pretty small, um, very uh, and really insignificant in relation to the sovereignty of who God is. But just as you start to recognize how great God is, Paul then shows how much value God puts on us by what he has done for us, which, which is a good spot. So you should, you should come to this passage recognizing um, the magnitude of this really magnificent sovereign God that we stand before today and just how uh, powerless we are in comparison to him. But yet at the same time, while we, we walk in that, to realize how great his grace is. That's, that's where this, this passage comes from. And we, from the very beginning as human beings, have wrestled with that reality. In fact, when you, if you just read, starting in the book of Genesis, what you discover uh, when, when the, the uh, serpent enters into the garden of Eden. Uh, the challenge to Eve is really to question Eve. Does God really have your best interest in mind? Um, does, does God, is God withholding something from you? Don't you know better for you that what you need than what God does? And sometimes we, we tend to act as the exception um, to what God has. Like, we'll sometimes read scripture and be like, that's good for all those people. But here in my situation, I'm different, right? Like, I know what's best for me. If, if God were here right now, he would obviously agree with me. You know? And we sort of put ourselves in the position of being in control of everything as if we were God. And that was the mistake Adam and Eve made in the beginning. They, rather than listen to God, they decided to tell God what was right and what was wrong. They wanted to take the position of God. And, and religion works the same way. Religion is all about you being in charge of your, your destiny and how you perform, that, that God must avail himself to you, and, and you obligate God by the things you do because, well, God owes you. You're in control. But what you find in Romans chapter 9, and the reason I think uh, Paul is answering questions here in Romans chapter 9 is because he's dealing with a religious audience. And he knows they're going to have some rebuttals to this because they think it's all about them and look how great they are because they do it better than anyone else. And so if God's going to love them, if God owes anybody, it's those guys because, well, at the end of the day, they're perfect and we're not. And he knows they're going to ask some questions related to that. And, and truth be told, we all should, especially in terms of what Jesus calls us to in Scripture, which is completely surrender your life to him. 
You, he didn't create you for you. He created you for him. And for you to find the purpose for your existence requires you to surrender your life completely to him and trust that, that God is sovereign and cares for you, right? It's, it's one thing to recognize the sovereignty of God, but it's another thing to, to, to also realize that in that sovereignty, God also loves you. To be completely in control but have no compassion or care for the people you're in control of is a dangerous thing. And, and, but, but at the same time, we need to know God is completely in control if we're gonna trust him. We need both of those things. God is in control, so if I trust him, he, he will work it out, and he cares about me. You need both of those things in order for you to relinquish those things. So, so what you think about God in this passage matters. Some people read this passage and look at the sovereignty of God and, and become so overwhelmed by the sovereignty of God, they don't even want to get near it. But when you start to, to, to recognize and looking at a sovereignty that he also loves you, that he's also for you, that he's given his life, then, then your response to him as you learn to trust in the Lord is, is to see how he is faithful when you move in that trust throughout your life. And this is where Paul comes in this, this, this passage of Scripture in, in, in Romans chapter 9. And, and, and Paul's teaching us to, to learn to trust in the Lord. And he really just makes two points in, these passage, in this passage that we're going to look at. in learning to trust in the Lord. And I think what's important is what we learn about the nature of God. Malachi chapter 3 verse 6 tells us, I am the Lord, I change not. So the same, same God you read about in the Old Testament is the same God in the New Testament, and he's the same God today. Sometimes we read these stories in Scripture, and we're like, man, that was great for those guys, the way that God did that, and the way that God loved them. And we, we see this God as if he is these, this distant description of, of, of this deistic God on a, on a page. But the, the reality is the same God you read about in the Bible is the same God today, and he carries the same concern for you. So learning to trust in him, important for all of us. Especially knowing we battle and wanting to put uh, ourselves in the position of, of God in, in our sovereignty as if we control our destiny and we don't. He does. So point number one in your notes is this. Our creator rules his creation. Not, not a very profound thought, but important. Our creator, he's, he's in charge of creation, not us. And so it's his to decide what he wants to do with it. And so uh, Paul starts off this way. What, what shall we say then? Is there an injustice on God's part? Uh, he, he's asking this question because remember, he's, he just ended in verse, uh, verse 13 talking about Esau and Jacob and how God chose uh, Jacob, but really before they were even born, he, he chose to work through, through Jacob that the Messiah would come and he didn't choose Esau. And some may look at that and be, well, that's not fair that God chose one and not the other. We dealt with that last week. But then, but then if you're a Jewish person, you see that uh, God chose Jacob and now you're looking at the circumstances in, in the first century and you, you, you feel like, well, wait a minute, if God chose to work through the Jewish people through Jacob, up that lineage, and now all of a sudden all these Gentiles are coming to know the Lord, but the Jews have, by and large, rejected Christ. How is God being true to what he promised, right? He promised it would come to the Messiah. He promised he would bless, send a blessing through God's people, but now it looks like God's people, um, the Jewish people, had rejected him. So does that mean that God is not faithful to what he promised? That's the, the question he's posing here. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? The one who claims to be just and righteous, is he unjust? Is he unrighteous? And the obvious answer to that, he tells us is by no means. No way. In fact, what we need to understand is how great God is and what his plan is for our lives. 
And so Paul starts to reveal to us God's authority, his character, and his plan. He goes on further in verse 15 to 18. You're going to see in verse 15 and 17, he actually quotes some Old Testament uh, descriptions of, of some events to help us understand. And then he, he makes a proclamation in verse 16 and 18 in light of that. So verse 15, 17, he reminds us of an Old Testament passage demonstrating who God is. And verse 16 and 18, he then describes the, the character of God in, in light of what happened there. And I'm going to actually start, I'm going to read verse 16 first so we can see what Paul wants us uh, to, to, to bring to light in light of the example he uses in verse 15. And then I'm going to go back and read verse 15. But this is what he says, verse 16. He says, So then, it depends not on humans, uh, human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Here's what Paul is saying in this passage, that God is completely in control and we aren't. That God really is not obligated to have to give us anything. He, he is just to allow us to experience the consequences uh, of our own actions in life. Like, there's no one in this room that God owes anything to. This is what God's saying. So if God has done anything in creation, it's only by hand of his grace. God, God is completely just with the life of any sinner to bring his justice at any moment. God is not obligated to any of us. He doesn't owe us a thing. And so he, in verse 15, then gives us that example of something God said to Moses in Exodus 33. He said, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. The statement that God gives to Moses is on the backdrop of him just setting Israel free from slavery. Didn't, didn't owe him, but he brought them out of slavery anyway by his grace. And in his grace, Israel, once they're set free, decides to immediately begin to grumble and complain against God. And God was upset by their behavior to him when he demonstrates this grace. But in light of that, God still chooses to demonstrate his grace. And he says to Moses, I can show my mercy to whoever I want, whenever I want. I don't owe anyone anything, but I can respond in this way. And for us, it's a reminder, a reflection of really what Romans has already taught us. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, he says, that, he says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And, and what Paul's recognizing here is that we all have a, a guilty because we all have a sin nature. And in light of that sin nature, we're also all sinful. We're guilty in both degrees that we've inherited this sin nature through, through Adam, which the wages of that is, is death. And in light of that, we've all, be, we've all been sinful. We've all done something wrong. And God's not obligated to any of us in light of that. The only thing that would be righteous for God to do is to bring his justice. The sovereignty of God in light of that is very sobering. Who I am before holy God, imperfect me, perfect creator. It's a very humbling place. And then he goes on in verse 18, he says this. He says, I got to find it. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul takes the thought that he shared in verse 16, and he takes it one step further. He, he says, not only will he have mercy, but he also hardens whomever he wills. And, and then he goes back and he shares this example in verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, 
For this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And then he goes on to describe for us the idea of hardening. What he's demonstrating to us is he's, he used uh, the, the hardening of Pharaoh for his purpose. He raised Pharaoh up in that hardening to accomplish what it is that he would desire. So, so coming to a passage like this and realizing how sovereign God is over creation and, and, and using Pharaoh as an example and talking about the hardening of Pharaoh, this is usually where people come into this passage like, wait a minute, I got, I got some questions here, right? God has creatures that he has created and, and some he has mercy on and some he's hardened. How? How does that work, right? And especially in light of a, a good God or a sovereign God. I told you in the beginning his sovereignty is important, but also, but also to, to talk about his nature. If you're going to completely trust in that sovereignty, you want to know that that sovereignty is for you. It's one thing to be sovereign, but it's another thing to be sovereign and actually be, be uh, for you as a, as a person. So, so trusting in that sovereign God, like how do I know that he doesn't have ill intent for me? What, what, what is, how does this work? Why would he do this? We'll talk about why in just a minute. But I think before we, we talk about why, I want to talk about how. How did God do this? What you think about this verse matters. It, it will affect how you respond to God. And it will encourage you to reflect what you think about God. And what I mean is, if you think God is evil and mean in his sovereignty, rather than run to him in need, you will run from him in fear. If you think God treats you poorly, it will encourage you to respond poorly. And so what you think about God in this passage matters because it will encourage how you respond to him and also how you reflect him in this world. So, so how did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Well, I think it's important just to remind us for a minute what we know about the character of God. In fact, if you grab the notes this morning, you'll see at the very bottom, I, I highlighted just a, a verse from Exodus chapter 34. And, but what, what's important about this verse is how much this verse is mentioned in Scripture. You know, if you ever read the Bible, Bible's uh, written by uh, 66 books, written by over 40 authors, 1,500 years. One of, one of the things that the authors of the Bible love to do is to quote one another. Over those 1,500 years, they'll reflect back on things God has done and the way he's demonstrated himself. And, and they'll quote those passages as if to remind as things move forward, this is how God is continuing to work. He's being faithful to his promises. He's being faithful to who he is. Do you know the most quoted verse out of all the Bible from other, uh, from, from, the book of, uh, comes from the book of Exodus, say it like this. The most quoted verse in the Bible by the other authors of Scripture comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 34, verse 6 and 7, because it's a reminder of the character of God. And they want the, the idea of who he is to constantly be reflected upon as God moves forward in this world. And so when you come to a passage like the hardening of heart and how we deal with it, I think this is important as it relates to the nature of God to understand who he is in his sovereignty. So that when we come to the idea of how we should respond in light of who God is, we do so with a correct perspective of, of God and his nature. So in Exodus 34, verse 6, it says this, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. 
but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and of the children's children and to the third and fourth generation. So he, he certainly ends by, by saying to us, look, God will be just. God, he will be just. He, will, he has to be in order to be good. He, he must be just. And he will judge. And the things that we do will, will affect generations, right? The way you choose to walk with God today will have an impact in generations. And, and, and for generations, your poor decisions can affect your, your lineage. It can affect people around you. But, but he's a reminder in all of that that what God's heart is, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, Abounding in steadfast love, faithful. That, that is who God is. In fact, in, in the book of Jonah, when Jonah was, was called to go to Nineveh to preach to the Ninevites, you know how the story of Jonah goes. It's like if anyone knows a Bible story, you know Jonah, right? Rather than go to Nineveh, he runs to Tarshish. He gets eaten by a big giant fish. He gets puked out later, which must have been a scene to see, right? And eventually he goes to Nineveh. And at the end of the book, Jonah really, in the, in the moment when he sees Nineveh repenting, he reflects on why he wanted to, to avoid going to Nineveh, even though God called him to. And this is what he says about the character of God. He says, and he, Jonah, prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is it not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That, it, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Um, Jonah's enemy, the Jewish people, their enemy was Nineveh. And, and Jonah didn't want to preach a message of opportunity for God's grace to the people in Nineveh because he knew the character of God. In fact, when you think about this idea of hardening of heart, I think what's important to know, James 1.13 tells us, uh, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God, God doesn't force us to do evil. God doesn't even tempt us to do evil. To do so would be to make God evil. But when we look at the idea of, of the, this hardening of heart, what you find throughout the book of Exodus where, uh, where Paul reflects on, on Pharaoh being raised up, it's interesting how it describes uh, the, this idea of hardening throughout the book of Exodus as that story unfolds. Uh, there's, there's multiple verses that tells us, one, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then, then there's passages where it tells us God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And, and then there's passages that tell us that Pharaoh's heart was hard. And so the question is, okay, well, who, who did the hardening of Pharaoh's heart? Was it Pharaoh? Was it God? Or was just his heart hard? And the answer to all that is yes. Yes. So how, how, how do you recon, reconcile that? And what Paul's communicating here and the idea of Pharaoh's heart being hard, well, one, it's to always remind ourselves of the sovereignty of God, right? Like, God is free to do as God desires to do as long as it doesn't violate God's nature. God is creator, we're, we're creature. But what does it look like for God to harden Pharaoh's heart? And I'm going to give you my biblical response to this. And if you don't like it, that's okay. I'll still call you a friend and you don't have to like me, okay? But I'm gonna like you, all right? People get very passionate about this. But I'll tell you what I think it is. Um, I, I think God can use whatever he wants for his glory. And he certainly does so for Pharaoh. In fact, one of the things I would be cautious with when, when it tells us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, one of the things I find interesting, if you know how the story goes, God frees Israel out of Egypt 
Egypt chases Israel to the, to the Red Sea. God parts the sea. Israel walks through the Egypt. The soldiers go in after, Pharaoh, or after Moses and the Israelites, and, and God closes the sea, and they drown, right? But what's interesting is there's not a passage that ever tells us Pharaoh drowned. There's not a passage that ever tells you Pharaoh died. There's not even a declaration about the end of his life eternally or physically. It just tells you that in this moment, God hardened Pharaoh's heart to accomplish a purpose. It doesn't even tell you for how long God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It could have been just for this moment. So to, to just assume all of that in this passage of Scripture, I think, is, is to imply a bit much than what Scripture says. But God can certainly use the evil in our heart to accomplish a greater purpose. God can do that. And in fact, he does it with Pharaoh. And, and this is the way I think God does it. Um, Pharaoh is full of pride. Truth be told, the reason any of us do not bow down to God is because we, our hearts can, can fill with pride. Like some, when some people understand the gospel, that, that Jesus paid it all, that Jesus gave his life for you, that if you come to Jesus, confess to Jesus, and surrender yourself to Jesus, that God gives you new life in him. Some people look at that and think, that's too easy, right? But, but I can look at that and say, no, that's incredibly hard because, because what it requires you to do is to be humble before the Lord. And people don't like to do that because we like to think that we're in control. And, and when our hearts are filled with pride and we think someone else wants to take the position that we want, then we war and we fight and we harden our hearts. Who is this God? That's the question Pharaoh asks Moses. When Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, God said, let my people go, Pharaoh's question is, who is that God? Doesn't he know I'm God? I mean, that's what the Pharaohs believed in the day, that they were God's presence on the earth. Does he not know who I am? Who is this petty God, one of many gods in this world today? And Pharaoh saw God as a competition to what he desired to do, not as a deliverer of his grace for people who needed freedom. And so Pharaoh's heart becomes hard. Pharaoh's heart starts to compete with that. And I think God looks at the moment and he says to him, that's fine, Pharaoh. If this is where your heart is, the hardening, of his, uh, hardening in this moment to that, God relinquishes his hand of grace off of Pharaoh and lets Pharaoh run down that path. God uses the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. In fact, I would say the same is true for us in Scripture today. There's warnings in the Bible. In the New Testament, Hebrews hap happens a few times. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. It is a gift of grace to even have the privilege to hear of what God has done for you that you could find freedom in him. Do you know how sovereign he is? Do you know what he could do to our lives at any moment because he is completely just, create, creator over creature? Yet you hear the word of his grace. In fact, 1 Peter 5, the opposite of that is to say this, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that at the proper time he may exalt you? I think in the stubbornness of our heart in our pride that when we experience grace, as, as, as Pharaoh experienced the grace of God coming in to even speak to him through Moses, when we're in that position of pride, rather than surrender, our heart grows harder. 
And I think this is what God did in this moment. He, he continued to pour out his grace, and Pharaoh's heart continued to get harder and harder in this moment, that he wasn't, he wasn't willing to let go. And God knew, and God was going to use it in order to bring out a, a greater purpose. So when you think about this passage, the, the beginning part of this, I think Paul is saying, when, when they ask the question, is God in, uh, uh, unjust, in, in verse 14, what, what Paul, rather than run away from that, what Paul really does is he steps harder into it. He's like, well, let, let's for a moment just examine how great this God is and how sovereign this God is so that so we can understand just how important we, we consider our state before him. This is not a game to play. God is holy. We are not. And God completely rules over creatures. We don't dictate what God does. God determines what God does. And so to come before a God of that magnificent brilliance and to even have a place to stand before him at all and not be be smitten off the earth, it's a place of grace. It's very humbling. It's very sobering. It puts a distinction between creature and creator, and it provokes us to consider what kind of person God is. One of the healthiest places you can be on your spiritual journey is in a place of complete humility before the Lord. And at the same time, when you recognize how powerful He is, it can also be scary. To to surrender yourself to something with that much authority, that much power. But but at the same time, like, I know why people tend to come to church, right? Like, and and not you guys, you guys have it all together and everyone's perfect here, right? So I'm talking about other churches in this moment, but you know, sometimes you walk through life and, and you experience the good things of life and sometimes you experience the bad things of life, but what you ultimately find in that is like, there's something missing. There's some, even when life goes well for you, there's something missing. And that void in your soul needs filled. And, and in order to fill it, it's gonna take something greater than what you've experienced in this life. Like for those who, who've walked life and have tried life without the Lord, how did that work out for you? You need something far more sovereign, far greater. And, and you need that thing to, to be for you. And I shouldn't call it a thing. I should call it God. But you need it to, to be for you, which is point number two that I think Paul then leans into in these notes. And he says this. Um, well, he doesn't say this. I'm saying this. God's way is always better. God's way is always better. Which is why here at church, we, we often say, look, we're not here to offer you, offer you a, just a piece of God. We're not here to tell you how to be the best, better version of yourself or how to be a good person. We're here so that you completely let go of, of you before the Lord. You die to yourself and embrace Jesus, what he has for you. That is the only way God calls us to live in scripture. That is the only way you find the purpose of, of your life and what God has for you. It's to, to surrender the, the, the throne of your life to the one who is really in control and, and find out what the, the Lord has, has called you to in him. And verse 19, he, he then goes on, he says this, he goes, you will say to me then, 
Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and, and another for dishonorable use? What if God, I love this. So he, he says to us uh, all the way to verse 21, look, God is creator, your creature, and he can do what he wants with his creation. He's in charge. That's what he's saying. But, but then he proposes this question, which is, which is great. He, he goes a step further and says, but now let's consider how this sovereign God acts. He says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory. He's saying, not only do you not recognize how a sovereign God really works, but, but what if he works this way? What if, for example, with Pharaoh, what if God was completely just, just to wipe Pharaoh off the earth? But rather, what if instead God chose to endure the hardness of Pharaoh in order to bring about a greater salvation. What if God could use the bad things of this world to bring an even greater hope through it? That's what he's saying. What if God knew how to turn the, the despicable heart of one person in order to bring the rescue of millions of people? That's what God's done. He's saying, look, you think you know better than sovereign God who is over all things? Consider, consider the character of who God is, Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. And now just, just look at the way God's hand has worked. He, even though Pharaoh made things hard, God turned it around for good for those that would find rescue in him. Millions of Israelites set free from, from that. Because of that, through that, and not only that, that, that story becomes a picture of the ultimate redemption that God wants to bring for his people throughout all of creation. In fact, God didn't just do it in the lives of Pharaoh. God does it over and over and get in scripture. When you, when you think about the, the New Testament, in the New Testament, Jesus teaching his word, people are receiving it, but not everybody. In fact, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus really says a similar thing to how God worked in the life of, of Pharaoh. He says, but to those who, of, uh, excuse me, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, right? So he's saying, look, to those of you that have embraced this, I'm glad you've embraced this. But to those of you on the outside, I'm teaching all of this in parables. And you know why I'm telling this in parables? Verse 12, so that they may, may be ever seeing but never perceive and ever hearing but never understanding otherwise they might turn and be forgiven you know what Jesus is saying here he, he's looking at people that have embraced him he's looking at people that are rejecting him and he's choosing to share a message where the people that are rejecting him can't understand what he's saying because what Jesus ultimately wants to do is use their hardness of heart to lead to his crucifixion that will bring a greater salvation for everyone God is taking what man intends really for evil and he's using it to write a, a greater redemption story for all people. Uh, in this moment, again, I think it's a little much to assume that, that, 
that Jesus uses the hardness of their heart. All right, Jesus isn't forcing the hardness of his heart, I don't think, but, but what I think in the story is their hearts are already hard and God is taking off his hand of grace. He's saying, I preached the message, you've rejected it, I'm taking off my hand of grace here to let you continue down the path of sin which you were already on. You're already choosing this road. And knowing that you're choosing this road, I am going to use this to bring about a, a greater salvation, a greater redemption story that will go beyond the Jewish people and it will reach into the Gentile world. In fact, the next verses Paul quotes in, in Romans chapter 9, verse 24, he goes back to the book of Hosea to, to share this. He says, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So what he's doing, he's going back to the story of Hosea. If you know the, the story of Hosea, um, Hosea was told by God to marry a prostitute. It's not known whether, whether uh, Gomer became a prostitute after she was married or before she was married, but at some point in there, she became a prostitute. And Hosea had to, had to keep going out and, and rescuing uh, Gomer. He, she had to keep, he had to keep paying for her, buy her out of slavery at one point. Like, and it was this picture of God's grace over and over showing up in our lives that no matter how many times we reject him, God is, he's faithful, he cares for us, he can... He can bring about a work even when our hearts are, are, are against him. And he, he refers to people that are not his. He tells when Hosea and Gomer have children, he's like, I want you to name these kids. Uh, name them not loved and not my people. Uh, who wants that name, right? But, but, but their life became a, a picture of really God's ultimate hand of salvation. And it became an illustration of God's hand over the Gentile world. To, to the Jews, he's saying, look, your rejection of me, I'm actually going to use that hard heart to bring about a greater redemption story to invite Gentiles into this. And then to, to answer the, the Jewish mind, he goes on further and shares a couple of illustrations, one from Isaiah 10 and one from Isaiah chapter, chapter 1, and he says this, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the numbers of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea. Only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Truth be told, what Paul is reminding Israel here, there has always been physical Israel, right? But there's only been a remnant that's been spiritual Israel. And really that belongs to the people of faith, whether Jew or Gentile. Um, what he's saying is, look, Israel, if you go back through your history, what you find is over and over, the majority continue to be unfaithful. But at the same time, God always had a remnant. God always had a remnant. And in Isaiah chapter 10, what he's doing, he's actually talking about it in this passage, it's a passage of judgment and hope. And what he's saying, Israel's being carried into Babylonian captivity, Assyrian captivity. They, they know these captivities are coming, and he's looking down the turnpike of their life, and they realize that they're going to be taken away, and they're wondering, is there any hope for us? And he reflects back on this passage, and he's saying, look, you're going to be taken away, but there's always going to be a remnant. God will always preserve. His grace will always come in and deliver. God, God will always be faithful in that way. So there's at one point recognizing there is judgment and rejection, but at the same time, there is this opportunity of hope. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 1, he goes on further and quotes verse 29. He says, and as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. 
And what they're saying is, look, if God hadn't intervened, it would have been over for us. We had no hope. Apart from the grace of God being made known in this world, there is no hope. And what Israel recognized in their unfaithfulness is that this sovereign God continues to show up with his faithfulness that they could always have the opportunity of hope. We see in this passage the sovereignty of God and you see in this passage the grace of God. The sovereignty is humbling and the grace is inviting to, to realize in comparison to who God is, really, really, we're just ants on this planet. But to see at the same time the, the love of God continued to be poured out over and over, no matter how many times Israel turned their backs on him, no matter how many times we turn our backs on him. The grace of God faithfully demonstrated in, in Christ. Now, some people, <laughs> sometimes we read a passage like this, and some people, they don't like it. <laughs> With Christ, there's, there's life. Without Christ, there isn't life. Um, and that's what, that's what the Lord is saying in this passage. And some people get frustrated by that. Like Jesus said st statements like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If you want to know how to get to heaven, it is exclusively Jesus. There is not another way. It is exclusively Jesus. And people get frustrated by that, and they think, well, uh, who is God to do that, right? I am a good person. I am in charge of my own, own destiny by the way that I perform to obligate God to have to own me. That's, that's, that's where people come to uh, oftentimes the pastors like that wrestling with, with things like this because they want to be in control. They don't like someone else's in control, and, and they want to govern their own destiny, and, and they don't want to accept the fact that God does. That's God's job, and the rebuttal of that is I'm a good person. It happens to me, I think, every week when I walk around. At some point, someone finds what, they do, what, what, what I do, and then they, they like to share their, their place, and they just say to me, um, here's, here's my belief. Um, and as long as you're good, that's all that matters. They try to find mutual ground. That's what they say to me. And, and can I tell you this morning, that's not all that matters. In fact, that doesn't matter <laughs> in comparison to your salvation. God certainly wants you to be good, but it's not in order to earn your position before him. That's not up to you. That's up to him. But to hold to that view, to hold to that view, uh, someone will say, you know, it's, it's not fair that God would say that as long as I'm a good person. Let me, let me just give you a few, a few thoughts here. There is no such thing as good without God. Like, to, to suggest you can be a good person without God is really foolish because there is, without, without God, there is no moral law. You, you have to have a moral lawgiver in order to have a moral law for which goodness must come from. You need a God in order for good to exist. So to suggest you could be good without God is an impossibility. Uh, two, it, it makes a mockery of what Jesus has done. It, it makes an absolute mockery of what Jesus has done. To suggest that you can look at Jesus who dies so that you can accept his free gift and say, oh, don't worry about that, Jesus. I got this. I'm a good person, Right? I can please, no, don't, you can do that for other people, Christ, but not necessary for me. 
as long as you're good, that's all that matters, right? I mean, it completely makes a mockery of everything Jesus offered in his life. If there was another way, Jesus would not have given himself. And, and then to suggest that all it takes to get into eternity, into heaven, is to simply be good without recognizing that what makes heaven heaven is the presence of Jesus. Who would ever think that you can live in someone's home and never acknowledge the person that owns the home? And you get in heaven and people are like, why are you here? I was just good. This is God's house. Who cares? I'm good, right? Like, I can live here. This belongs to me. To, to suggest you can be in the presence of God without ever acknowledging God, without even surrendering to the one who owns the home, is foolishness. What makes heaven heaven is the presence of Jesus. It's him. It's, it's not about if you're good enough. No one can ever be good enough. It's about if your life has been humbled before the creator of all things who has given his life for you that you can find freedom in him. When we talk about life as Christians, we're not talking about living forever. That's certainly a part of it. But we're not talking about when I go to heaven, I, I get to live forever. That's not what we're talking about. When we talk about life, we're talking about experiencing a relationship with Jesus both now and forever. We talk about eternal life. It's, it's not about a place. It's about a state of being before anything. And that state of being is having life because you have Christ in you. And the only way that happens is by having your life completely surrendered to him. Which is why I said towards the beginning, our church is not a church about come get a little self-help. It's not about giving you a little bit of improvement to make tomorrow just slightly better. I do want your life to be better. But the only way that really happens is an absolute surrender to the sovereignty of this God, knowing the character of God and what he has done for you. And when you discover that, when you see this great God and how personal he has become, in order that you could have forgiveness and freedom. There is no one who has ever loved you to that degree. There is no one who can give you the hope that Christ has, has provided for you. There is nothing in this life that can fill you the way that Jesus can fill you. And, and when our hearts begin to recognize that it's not only a gift that we can receive, but it's something that Jesus also wants to, to live out through us that others can know him. When we're filled with the presence of that God, our hearts are inspired to live for his glory in this world because we recognize when we didn't have a shot in the dark, Jesus comes in with his great light to give us his presence. Which leads me to this story to end. There's a young man named, named James Renwick. He, he lived in the 1600s. His father's name was Andrew. His mother's name was Elizabeth. Um, their, his parents were, were weavers. They lived in Scotland. They, they had had multiple children, but none of them had survived out of childhood. And their prayer to the Lord was, God, if you could just give us one, one more child. And the Lord did. The Lord brought them James. And this family was a, a family of believers. And it was during the time that King Charles came into Scotland. King Charles II came into Scotland and tried to declare to the church that he was the ruler of the church and they needed to surrender to them. And this group of people refused to acknowledge King Charles as the king over the church in Scotland. And they referred to their, themselves as covenanters. 
They didn't want a, a, an earthly king over the church. They wanted their heavenly king, and they refused to bow down to, to King Charles to the point that King Charles started martyring the Christians in Scotland. In fact, James went on to study in, in the University of Edinburgh in order to, to go into to ministry. And while he was in Edinburgh, when King Charles's people would come into town, they would find the Christians and, and they would decapitate them and they would cut off their hands and they would nail their heads in their hands to the walls of the city gate as warning to the people in, in their desire to pursue God and not bow down to King Charles. James was one of those people. James refused to bow down. James, the story says that in his life, he would travel all over Scotland, sometimes by day, sometimes by night, over mountains, hungry, sleeping in caves, continuing to proclaim Christ to the people and refusing to bow down to Charles. And one day, James was caught. James was thrown into the stocks. And James got to the end of his life. Right before he, he died, his mother came to visit him. And, and the night before his execution, he happened to, to slip a note to his mother. But James's note is a reminder of what the heart discovers when it finds itself in Christ. But he says this, February 16, 1688. James's mother at this point is a widow. But he says, there is nothing in the world that I am sorry to leave but you. Farewell, mother. Farewell, night wanderings, cold and weariness for Christ. Farewell, sweet Bible and preaching of the gospel. Welcome, crown of glory. Welcome, the blessed Trinity and one God. I commit my soul into your eternal rest. Do you know why James could say that so confidently? The next day he was carried out to his execution. But do you know what gave James the privilege to say something like this so authoritatively and knowing where his eternity rests? The sovereignty of a good God. When you know how great God is and you know how much his power reigns and you see the extent of his grace willing to come for your life that you can find freedom in him, if anything in this world is secure, it is what you have with Christ. James in that moment, boldly letting himself rest in the sovereign hands of that God, knowing that what God desires for him is always best. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.